Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Right now, I really do feel this is the greatest opportunity we've ever had to reinvent ourselves. The tools are out there. The gatekeepers are disappearing the opportunities exist. I've talked to hundreds and hundreds of people on my podcast. I also have my own experiences that through trial and error, I learned the techniques that really helped me to reinvent myself, to master a new area of life, to get good, to get successful, to thrive. I want you to have a copy of what I think is one of my best books that I've ever written, Reinvent Yourself. All you have to do is go to www.reinventbook.net that's www.reinventbook.net. Whether you want to supplement your income with a little extra cash or replace your job, the book Reinvent Yourself will show you how. I've reserved a copy for anyone listening to this today. All you have to do is go to www.reinventbook.net. That's www.reinventbook.net. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. So a lot of this book, I think, is it's almost like a love letter to these board games. A lot of these lessons, it feels like, are the direct benefits of playing these games to your life. So for instance, you enjoy them, you learn history, you learn some aspects of capitalism and what makes a good game, what makes a good set of rules, what makes a good player. Uh, you know, I'm wondering if there's more lessons in in life. Like this is how I acquire skills in something, or this is how I learn when I need to be more offensive rather than defensive. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. There's a game that everyone needs to play to teach them about statistics. It's over in half an hour, which is what you know a lot of people like to like short games. It's a, it's actually a classic. It's called Can't Stop. I don't know it. You don't know it. Most people don't know it. It's one of these games that deserves to be in the Hall of Fame of games. And uh, it's called Can't Stop. It's a simple game. And the title says it all. It's what's known as a push-your-luck game. And you can play it with like a 10-year-old. It's a super fun game. What, what, what's your number one classic game? <sighs> it's chess, but I hate it so much. Like, you know, it's... Uh, <laughs> uh, and it's actually... And I didn't know you were a chess master until I came on. I'm, I'm not sure I would have come on if I knew you were a chess master. Like it's very, because you hate just chess players. It's intimidating. <laughs> no, it's kind of like you know a person. I don't know. It's like a person telling you they went to Harvard or something. Yeah. Sure. Eh, good. Yeah. Sure. Um, it's unclear to me if we've started already though. Like have we no, started recording? No. Okay. No. Right. Yeah. I mean, we probably started recording, I'm but being, we'll, just, we'll officially start now. This is just fluffing that's going on. Here. Yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> So excited to have Jonathan Kay on the podcast. Jonathan and his co-author, Joan Moriarty. 
Just wrote a book called Your Move, What Board Games Teach Us About Life. Jonathan, I guess you play a lot of board games. Uh, yeah, I love board games. And I didn't know I was doing research for the book until I got the idea for it a couple of years ago. And then, yeah, it turned out that all those games I was playing uh, informed the book you have in front of you. And I'll ask the obvious naive question, but do board games actually teach you about life? Uh, they do, but not... I mean, I read the book and I see your yeah. answer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they do, but uh, not if you're, you know, an adult and you're still playing Battleship. Uh, you know, part of the, uh, the purpose of the book is to help people get beyond a lot of the games they've been playing since they were kids. Uh, my my co-author is actually a full-time worker at a, a board game cafe. And she says she's just, like, alarmed at the number of people who are clearly smart, clearly intellectually curious, and all they want to do is play, like, Candyland and, and games they played when they were eight years old. And her cafe has, like, a thousand amazing games, that many of which have been published in the last decade or two. Uh, and so, yes, you can learn from board games, but you, you have to be take the leap and go out of your comfort zone and uh, not play the games you were playing in your rec room when you were a kid. Yeah, because I guess I guess you can divide games, non-digital games, into three categories. There's the uh, kind of games from the past century that were for children, like Candyland or Life or Shoots and Ladders, these games that were kind of primarily chance-based and you played with, you know, parents played them with their toddlers, whatever. Then there's the older, more, I would say, more sophisticated games like Chess, Go, you could throw poker in that. Many card games you could throw into that category. Bridge. Uh, I'd, I'd even include Scrabble in that category, even though it's a more recent invention, but it's 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 a sophisticated game. And and then there's the games you mostly discuss in this book, which are these very intense, complicated strategy games. Almost like I would say how uh, it's like Risk grown up. Yeah. So like domination of the world in some way but in a much more sophisticated way than just rolling the dice and aiming for Madagascar. <laughs> yeah, you knew Madagascar and uh, Irkutsk and Ukraine would uh, would get in there somehow from... Because I did play Risk, and I think your typology is correct, that you do have these classic games uh, like chess and backgammon and stuff like that. And then you have these games that we grew up with, uh, you know, I'm 50, uh, which are sometimes derisively called Ameritrash, uh, by European board gamers, and that that name is sort of stuck. It's sort of like, you know, Battleship, Can uh, Candyland, Monopoly. You know, real gamers love, uh, although, love Monopoly. Yeah, you guys, you and your co-author have this uh, heated argument about Monopoly throughout the we book. We do, we do. Yeah, and and I would argue Monopoly is a little bit more sophisticated than Candyland. Maybe it's around risk. It ruins levels. it ruins more relationships than Candyland. <laughs> it's it's a poorly designed game because. You know, if you're losing the game, you could get eliminated and then your friends play for the next two hours and you just sit there becoming bitter. But the third category is sometimes called Euro games. And that's like Settlers of Catan. You know, some of your listeners may have played Ticket to Ride, games like that. And, and actually in the second chapter of the book, we discuss the emergence of these so-called so Euro games. Uh, and it has to do with history because it used to be that if you wanted to play a big, sophisticated strategy game, it was a war game. You know, you were reenacting World War II or you were reenacting Gettysburg or something like that. And then after World War II, for perfectly understandable reasons, in Europe, people didn't want to play war games. Like, especially in Germany, it just had a horrible historical resonance. So you had a bunch of Germans sitting around uh, and, you know, planning the opposite of war this time. 
And they said, let's create games that are about building. And so like Settlers of Catan is a perfect archetype of a Euro game because there's no combat. It's not a war game. It's a strategy game, but it's about building something. And if you look at all of these new Euro games that have come around in the last couple of decades, there's always a focus on constructing things. And uh, so you can play something strategic and thought-provoking and interesting, and it's not necessarily like this Napoleonic thing where you're moving little armies around the map, which turns a lot of people off uh, and always has a militaristic theme. Well, well, uh, but there are a lot of, uh, in, in that category of like these very complicated, sophisticated games, there's a lot of... Uh almost like war simulation games where you're in a battle in World yep. War II and you have to win win a series of battles. Well, I stuck those in. And, and because, it's very historical. Like yeah. It's very historically accurate. Yeah. So I think you're probably referring to, I think it's like the third to last chapter. It's about a game called Advanced Squad Leader, which is a game I love. Uh, that is an old school World War II tactical game. I think it originates in the 1970s. Uh, and that that's a very much an American game uh, because you know World War II games are still... I would say they're like they carry better better historical baggage than, than than in Europe. So yeah, you still get a lot of old school war gamers. I mean, I I still I travel all, all over the United States to play to play war games, but that is like that's a subculture within the subculture of board games. And if you go into most most board game cafes, people aren't interested in spending like five hours, uh, you know, simulating the Battle of Stalingrad. They're more interested in something that has like more upbeat atmospherics, uh, you know, like some of these these other games we've been talking about. And then I guess to kind of break down, I guess maybe there's a fourth category, which is uh, card games, like Cards Against Humanity, Secret Hitler, um, where where I would say the there's a, there's still a skill level, but it's a little bit more psychological, whereas in Sellers of Catan, maybe the skill level is a little more strategic. Okay, so there is a whole class of games, which are, I would classify as social site games, and these are games that there's not a lot of strategy in the conventional sense. Uh, you know, there's some games popular that called Werewolf. Uh, there's another game um, called Junta, which is about you're playing mind games with other people trying to take over a mythical South American country. But the whole purpose of these social psych games is to get inside the head of the other person and predict what they're doing. And you're looking around the table and you're trying to figure out who is secretly in cahoots with who and who's going to backstab who. And I, I'm completely terrible at those games because I... You know, I'm pretty good at figuring out my own strategy, but when you're trying to figure out what's inside other people's brains and you have to read their facial expression and stuff like that, I'm just, I'm awful at it. And one of the educating things about board games is you're learning about yourself. Like, there's a reason I'm, I'm good at some kinds of games and I'm terrible at other kinds of games. Well, let me ask you a question. Are you good at poker, for instance? No, I'm, I'm horrible. So, because poker, I would argue you have to look around at people's faces and yeah. see what's going on. Yeah, no, no, I'm, but I'm bad at poker for two reasons. One, I'm bad at the social aspect. Uh, I'm also just, I'm not interested in playing games for money. And poker is a completely uninteresting game to play if you're not playing for money. Uh, so I'm bad at that. I'm also just bad at like kind of the um, macho uh, cultural aspects of poker, like going to some dude's house and it's like he's got a $200 whiskey and he's smoking and like, you know, it's just all that bullshit. I hate that. Uh, I want to be in an, you know, in an airless conference room in Cleveland playing with like 200 other guys recreating World War II battles. Like that's my, that, those are my people. So, so do you like those? Because I, I mean, I sort of always felt that part of the attraction of the war game specifically, the, like this ASL that, that, that you like. Advanced squad leader, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, uh, part of the attraction is it's almost like a safe way 
to re-experience history without actually being in a war. That's a huge part of it. So like that particular game, uh, it's rare that you're going to get someone who plays that game who isn't, doesn't have at least a passing interest in World War II. And by the way, like in my personal politics and stuff like that, I, you know, I, I don't own a gun. I, I'm not interested. You're Canadian. I'm a Canadian, yeah. Like I was, I'm sort of, I'm very close to pacifistic in my politics. And, uh, you know, if I'm out, you know, on, <laughs> I'm out on the street and I hear a car backfire, like, you know, I start running. Like I just, I, I, I don't like any kind of gunplay in my personal life, but I'm fascinated by history. I'm fascinated, you know, I, I still have like a schoolboy's fascination with war, but that's not really the main aspect I like, I like about these complica complicated war games. Uh, what I like about it is they're very re realistic in, in the sense of the, the historical detail. And they occupy like a giant part of my brain. When I'm playing it, uh, just the entire world is, is completely blurred out. Like, you know that old comment about artificial intelligence and chess. Uh, you know, computers are very good at making a perfect chess move uh, when the house is burning down. Whereas like human intelligence is like, I'm not going to play chess, I'm going to run out of the house. Whereas computers are sort of like, they get tunnel vision. Um, you do get a certain kind of tunnel vision when you're playing these really complex games, and it's therapeutic. Like, it's almost like a form of meditation. So, so it's, like, it's like a flow state. It's total flow state. And you're not looking at your phone. Um, like, sometimes I'll be playing these games, and, and seven or eight hours will pass. And, like, in ordinary life, I rarely go 90 minutes without snacking. But uh, I'll go half a day playing these games. I don't realize I'm hungry. Uh, you know, I don't realize, like, it's gone from day to night. I haven't checked my phone. That part of it is amazing. And I don't get that with anything else in life. So, so I'm always curious because uh, I acknowledge that uh, these board games, which I feel like are a little bit uh, more youthful. Like you, when I go, so there's a place, the Hex Cafe, a few blocks up that uh, uh, you, there's hundreds or a thousand of these board games that people could check out and play and drink coffee and they're with their friends. And it always seems to be a younger crowd. Uh, uh, what what's what's the fascination of those versus the classic games that have been around hundreds or even thousands of years, like Go, chess, I'll throw poker in the category, other card games, backgammon, you know, even even Connect Four is a variation yeah. on games yeah. that are thousands of years old. So one of the, one of the defining aspects of chess is there's no luck, and that's what makes chess such a terrible game for couples to play because if one person is better than the other person at chess that person's going to win like nine out of 10 games. It's not, it's not going to be fun for the other person. Right. Although there's ways to, I, I, I agree with you that, that, that chess is a, a perfect information game. So all of the information is on the board. There's no chance. There's no dice. There's no cards that you're holding that the other person doesn't know about. All the information is on the board. Um, there's an, there, 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 there's a way to handicap though, you know, you can adjust times on a clock or you can take your rook off. But once you do that, then it takes all the fun out of winning. It's like winning the B division at your tennis club. Like right. no one wants to win the B division at their tennis club. Although, although in like we were talking a little before the podcast about the game Go, which is arguably the most popular game in the world because it's the most popular game in China. And there the handicap system is very clean. Like you just give the, the weaker player has a few free moves in the beginning and as they improve, the handicap gets less and less, and that's that's thought of as part of the game. What you find in the most popular games these days is there's a sort of like golden zone in terms of the the role of luck in the game. So games that are all luck, because there are some games, like Snakes and Ladders. It's is, all luck. It's a perfectly deterministic system. In fact, there are some people who say Snakes and Ladders isn't a game because there's no free will. 
right? Like it's just it's a philosophical. I would agree with that. Sorry, I would agree with that. Yeah, there's it's it's you know it's completely mechanistic. Uh, on the other hand, one of my favorite games is backgammon because it's probably like seventy percent skill and thirty percent luck. I would say it's uh, in the in the long run. Like let's say you're playing. It's you know, for 500 points, it's probably, yeah, 99% well, every, skill. Okay, so everything regresses to yeah. the mean, right, in terms of skill. But if let's say you played uh, three or four games, you know, low sample size. Uh, luck plays a role, and it plays enough of a role that an intermediate player has some hope of doing well against a really good player, which is just you can't do that in chess unless you go through the some, like, somewhat infantilizing step of that, actually removing pieces from the board. That's right. So backgammon and poker... Um, have these have these great qualities where there's enough chance that in one or two games or three or four games the the weakest player could beat the best player yeah. in the world um and and that's what makes them such great gambling games because weak players don't understand always the odds and think that oh I'm good at this because I they've had luck in the past and uh and they're willing to play against strong players but when in chess or go that's not the case by the way you mentioned poker I like I, I hate poker um I hate poker because when you look on TV and you 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 see the people who are playing it and the expressions on their faces, they're like people, the guys are like, you know, I wouldn't let my daughters date guys like that. Uh, and everyone looks scuzzy and they just look emotionally flatlined because you have to be, you have to appear emotionally flatlined to be successful at poker. And who wants to play a game where the goal is to remove your humanity? Like Even when they win, like they look like, they look like they've been emotionally neutered. And, and that's the opposite <laughs> of what I want from my game experience. And it's also like, I'm not an anti-capitalist, but it also shows how the profit motive can ruin, can ruin things. Uh, the, the game tournaments that I go to, in a million years, no one would bet five bucks on a game. It would totally ruin the experience. It, it'd, be like, it'd be like offering your girlfriend money for sex. Like it would just be, it would be completely against the spirit of the relationship you have with the people there. And yet a lot of the lessons you, you, I mean, we'll talk about the specific lessons because that's what this book is about, but a lot of the lessons um, you've learned from board games or you and your co-author uh, learned from board games, you, you can say that similar lessons can be learned from poker, chess, backgammon, some of Absolutely. these other, other yeah. games and stuff. And uh, uh, I was gonna ask you also about Scrabble. You're, you're pretty heated about Scrabble in the book. <laughs> so I hate Scrabble. Uh, now. The chapter that I wrote on Scrabble started off as just a straight-out screed against how much I hate Scrabble. And uh, one, one of my, my good friends in, in Canada, his, his name is John Chu, uh, he is one of Canada's uh, greatest Scrabble players. And in fact, he makes his living going around the world organizing Scrabble tournaments. Uh, he once took part in a game where I think it was the highest total points scored in a Scrabble game. It was 1,004 points. Uh, he was one of the two players. So he's a Scrabble nut. His life is about Scrabble. And I talked to him a long time, like how much I hate Scrabble so much, because I went to one of his classes that he's teaching to kids. And he gave, he gave out this handout. It was like, okay, here's a list of like the 30 words or however many words that require a Q, but not a U. So everyone was memorizing this list of words. No one knew the meaning of the words because it's, it's not rewarded in Scrabble. And I'm sitting there looking at this list, and I felt like I was in grade five, mem memorizing French conjugations. And I was like, this isn't fun. This is work. Sure, sure. So, the, so, so games like Scrabble and chess require, uh, to, to get really good, require a heavy amount of memorization. But I'm just going to complete the thought, because you're right. Memorization is exactly what it is. But the chapter is about how one person's work is another person's play. Because memorizing those lists, for a lot of people, it, there's a kind of joy in it. 
Right. And the same thing with chess. Memorizing, like, you know, there's a lot of people who know, like, you know, a queen's pawn opening eight moves deep. They, they know the book on a queen's pawn opening or ten moves deep. And memorizing it is fun for them. Whereas for 99% of, of humanity, it's not fun. It's work. Right, but I, I would argue memorization is ultimately a small part of those games. And even Scrabble is in, incredibly strategic. You, you, I don't it, think it's a small part. Just, you know, the, the biggest part of Scrabble is as you're accumulating points and finding opportunities for yourself on the board, you're also trying very hard to limit your opponent's ability to get points. So memorization is a necessary but not sufficient condition to be a great Scrabble player. And all the great Scrabble players I, I talked to and I interviewed for the book, they will focus on things like spatial perception and just what you said, the higher order strategic uh, calculus that goes into it. But they talk about that because they take it for granted that they've all memorized all the words they need to know. And for most of us, that is just, that's a baseline criterion that I refuse to meet because it's, it's thousands of hours of work. I'm not going to do it. And also, like, this is why I stopped playing chess is like, you know, I, if you're figuring every opening out from scratch, and because you don't know, you don't even, you can't even go, you know, uh, eight or ten moves deep into a fairly standard opening and knowing what the best moves are. You have to figure it out, like, move for move. And your opponent knows it because they've memorized it. It's no fun anymore because it, it means you haven't done the work and it feels like work. You haven't done the work in order to get to that level. Uh, I agree. But, uh, again, with, with chess, I would say it's even less memorization or much less memorization than Scrabble involved because you don't have to know any openings to play a good ch a, a grandmaster level chess game. I mean, AlphaGo, which is the Google's chess program, which is or or, or whatever it's called, a deep mind, uh, is the best chess player in the world, and it will beat anybody without knowing any openings at all. Well, it doesn't know the openings, but it's been programmed. Uh, through, it's been it's essentially the machine learning algorithms that go into programs like that. Uh, basically, channel or impute information from millions and millions and millions of games that have been fed into it. And it's absolutely true that there's no rigorous analytical uh, mode that dictates what, what each move is going to be, but the, the machine learning algorithm essentially has, has, has studied openings because it's the results of all those games and all those pieces that have been played that are used to, to program the decision-making uh, algorithm that it uses so, you know, I, I would argue against that. I think computer, computers memorize openings in their own way. No, that, that's a good point, that it's kind of uh, learning those openings. But a good player will be a uh, not-as-good player even playing a horrible opening on purpose. So I, I, I specifically have a, a, a book that is the worst possible opening move you can make. <laughs> okay. And it was written by a good grandmaster, and he details 50 games he won against other grandmasters with these the so worst you mean possible like, like he'll move like a rook's pawn yeah he do to, pawn he just he does pawn to king rook three and then pawn to king knight four and that's madness yeah that's but he madness. but then he and it's called the elgan system and uh i uh it's 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 amazing because people it's so i've tried playing it and it's so unexpected to people you they do actually make mistakes pretty well, early like on that. some guy wrote a book i think it was called i beat andy roddick with a frying pan where like you know Andy Roddick played played tennis against the guy and he was using a frying pan and the guy was using a racket and I think Andy Roddick almost beat him but like that's because he's Andy Roddick like you know grandmasters well, that's, find right. ways you know for them it's amusing right that's my point though is that there, there, there's a skill level at that highest level yeah. that you don't need uh, the memorization factor you need you need kind yeah, of this so if raw you're a grandmaster and, you can beat people with a frying pan yeah. uh, you know for the rest of us mortals you know it's uh, <laughs> we can't do that. So, so okay, we covered the, the... Oh, no, okay, card games like Bridge, 
spades, hearts. Yeah. So the reason, I, so again, you know, no, no one book can cover every game. One of the reasons that I'm not crazy about card games, and it's a theme that comes in the book, is I like games that tell stories, right? Sellers of Catan tells a certain kind of story. It's a story of development. A good chess game will tell a certain kind of story. You know, you've got attrition on this side, uh, and then there'll be kind of like a blitzkrieg on this side, and a bloody exchange followed by, by victory. Like, there is a kind of narrative that can come out of a good chess game, right? Uh, but card games have no narrative whatsoever. If you're playing, like, you know, gin rummy uh, or poker, like, there's, there's no narrative whatsoever. It's a completely sterile statistics game. And again, if you're gambling, that's great. Card games are great for gambling. You know, there you go. Some people like Kino. But to me, that's not gaming. That's a form of income generation. Okay. I, I, I don't 100% agree, but I, I see where your distinction is. And uh, so is that is that basically the first lesson, which is that, you know, since storytelling is such, such a primal part of how we live our lives, it's how we explain the narrative of our careers, it's how we do sales is by, you know, imagining yourself with this vacuum cleaner or it's how we, you know, uh, uh, explain things to our children and do parenting. So is that, is that the first thing you learn from playing games and, and f from all the board game play that you've done? Is that how, how integral storytelling is to the, the way we live our lives? It's an absolutely huge part of it. And in fact, I think I confess in one of the chapters is one of the reasons I got into board games. I am pretty sure is that <clears throat> I'm a writer, but I'm a nonfiction writer, and I found I couldn't write fiction. And the reason I couldn't write fiction is I'd have characters staring back at me from the page, and they can say anything, they can do anything, there's this infinity of possibilities, and I just was paralyzed. There's just too many choices. Whereas when I play games, there is a sort of structured, crowdsourced component to the storytelling. When I'm playing a World War II war game, and I, I just go into great detail about a particular game uh, I played that simulated a, a battle in Belgium in 1940. I just picked a scenario at random. Um, you're operating within the confines of the rules, and you're operating within the confines of competitive gameplay, where you can't just do anything because your opponent is, you know, is taking countermeasures. But out of those measures and countermeasures, bounded by rules over the course of many hours, this incredibly exciting narrative emerges. And I, I go into some detail about it, and I talk about how this like fake battle, which was based on a real battle, how it emerged uh, over, over all these hours we played. And the story that emerged that was crowdsourced between the two of us, there's absolutely no way out of my own mind I could have created anything so exciting. And you say, you even say, I think it was in that chapter, how uh, that particular game has fan fiction around it, or a similar game has fan fiction around it. Well, a lot of these games, I would say more, a lot of the sword and sorcery games, um, uh, they, it's hard to know where the fan fiction ends and the gaming begins because many people who play like Dungeons and Dragons style games, uh, you know, a, it's not surprising that a hugely common vector into that is they got into Lord of the Rings. They got into The Hobbit and they wanted to recreate the magic of discovering that kind of thing. But also, like me, deep down, they know they're not novelists. They can't sit down and create the universe. The only way they can create the universe is by getting together with their friends and playing for a couple of hours and hoping that something memorable happens. But it doesn't happen out of each person's imagination. It happens because each person pushing for their own character's interests. Uh, and, you know, again, it starts with, you know, a 12-year-old reading Lord of the Rings, but it might end with a 30-year-old uh, playing some deeply involved Dungeons and Dragons style game, 
But the impulse to create is there, even though most of us can't write a novel or a short story. This is what we do instead. Well, I, get, I wonder if one of the things, when you say you can't write a novel or a short story, a big element of speculative fiction is world building. You have to kind of construct a fully thought out world that, that, that even goes beyond and can be imagined beyond the, the finite uh, package of pages in a book. And you can argue with these games, the, the rules are sufficient enough, the, the background is sufficient enough that it does this world building for you. So now you can go right into the story. So one thing, one typology I should mention is that there's, there is a distinction between like strategy board games and something called role-playing games. Now, a role-playing game is something like Dungeons and Dragons, or, you know, for those who are old enough, they might remember Gamma World or a Traveler, which was a sort of a science fiction Dungeons and Dragons game. And a role-playing game is, I mean, it's just, you're inhabiting a character and you're going in some pretend universe and it's more just like free-form imaginative role-play with some rules and some dice rolling. The, even that kind of game, I find, is too much. It's almost like theater. It's almost like you're doing improv. Um, and a lot, of, a lot of the joy in that is dependent on the dungeon master creating a world. And if the dungeon master doesn't have, like, the spark of creativity to create the world, then it's, it's not going to be a fun game. And very few people have that ability. That's why, you know, I kind of know my level when it comes to imagination. I tend to play the more structured, strategic board games where it's less about inhabiting a particular character and more about, like, commanding an empire or commanding a company or, um, or, or a historical movement or something like that. It tends to be a little bit more abstract as opposed to being, you know, you're inhabiting one person in some medieval dungeon. So you've been playing, you've been playing these board games for decades, you've been going to all sorts of tournaments, played, let's say, thousands of who knows how many games. All right, what's, what are some of the ways you feel it's benefited you in life? Uh, well, one way it's benefited is that I'm actually, I've figured out how I can be in the same room with people for a long period of time because, uh, and I don't know how many of your listeners uh, will identify with this, you know, I, I'm not one of these people who can sit down and like binge watch a Netflix show with, with my wife. Or, or friends. Like, I get so bored. Um, after 10 or 15 minutes of watching somebody else's narrative, I get bored. Uh, and so I can't really go to movies with people. Um, you know, I can watch TV in bits and pieces, but then I get restless and I, I get up and I start cooking. Do you think, though, that's because maybe most shows are bad or most movies no, are bad? No, I think, I think we're living in a golden age of TV. Like, I, you know, when I was a kid, you know, it was Three's Company and Happy Days. It was, it was crap. I think the TV is good. I think I have the type of brain that I need to be creating something. I'm a writer. Uh, it's not, you know, people will say, well, not everyone's a fan of my writing. They'll say it's good writing, it's bad writing, whatever, but I need to be writing something. I need to be creating something. Board gaming is something I can do with other people. It doesn't involve electronics. I'm not staring at a screen. There's no beeps. There's no buzzes. I'm completely present socially because they're so complicated that I, I, I can't be, you know, I can't be answering my phone. But at the same time, I feel like I'm creating a narrative out of it. So it keeps my attention and it keeps me engaged in a way that will never happen with Netflix. And it'll never happen with watching it. You know, I like baseball. I'll go to a baseball game. But even baseball, like, you know, I'll, I'll score the game. Or, uh, I'll, you know, I'll start reciting statistics to people. Like, I, I need to find some way to engage myself in a creative way. Mm -hmm. I can't just do it passively. And I think those, the kind of people I'm describing, I think my co-author is one of them, uh, tend to be drawn to these games. And even though it's subcultural, 
it helps them engage with the people around them in a way that I think develops them socially such that it benefits their relationships, even with people who aren't gamers, because they have this thing that they can plug in to a social life and uh, the, the confidence and the sense of, of, of social um, succor that gives them, they can, they're just happier with their friends and their family and their colleagues. So, so that's, a, that's a direct benefit, meaning um, because of games, this positive thing happens in your life. What's like a, a metaphor benefit? <laughs> Well, so there are... Because you make some metaphors here. Like so, okay, can't... let's take Monopoly. Um, like, not everybody uh, goes to school and studies economics and understands how screwed up our economy is, right? I talk about how Monopoly, even though it's a crap game, the way Monopoly is a crap game helps explain why our economy is a crap economy. Because Monopoly obeys something called, that an engineer might call an unstable dynamical system. So in an unstable dynamical system, once the system starts to move in one direction, it accelerates in that direction. It's sort of like a pencil standing on its tip. Once it, it deviates in any direction, it continues to deviate in that direction until it falls. I talk about how hypercapitalist societies, like in a game of Monopoly, are unstable dynamical systems. You're playing Monopoly, some guy's winning, they've got Boardwalk and Park Place, you have nothing, they're making more money, and every time you land on them, you have to mortgage properties. You have to sell stuff. So not only are you giving them money, you're taking away your ability to make money. It's an unstable, dynamical system in so, that it, it drives poor toward bankruptcy and it drives rich toward victory. Right, So, but just to define, you're basically saying with games like Monopoly, there, there becomes a tipping point where even though the game's still continuing, the... the the rich are just going to become the winners, right. and the, the poor are just going to become the losers, and, and even though they still have to play it all absolutely. out. Absolutely. And, and one, of the, one of the reasons it's such a crap game is that often you're half an hour into the game, and you, you know who's going to win. And, and, and your but point you also— you still have to sit there, like, just stewing. Like, you have to play two hours. You don't want to be a poor sport and abandon the game, but, but everyone's pissed off because they know this guy's going to win, and he's lording it over everybody. But the game keeps going. And, you know, Settlers of Catan, I notice you have a copy here on the table. The Europeans and their socialistic wisdom— they have built in stabilizing factors. So like if you've played Settlers of Catan, you know there's this robber. The robber is essentially a taxing agent. It's a tax and spend mechanism where uh, you take the robber and nine times out of 10, the robber ends up on the property of the guy who's winning. So it ends up being a break on victory for the guy who's winning and it gives a chance for other people to catch up. All Euro games, all modern games have a mechanism like that and and by the way, so this is you call this a stabilizing factor that it, it tends to hurt the the uh, party that's winning more than it hurts the party that's losing. I like the fact in those types of games where the stabilizing factor can be used strategically as well. So it's not necessarily something that some by chance I'm going to roll a dice and suddenly I'm like no, losing. No. It's usually it's used uh, to um, as an underdog factor. Let's stop to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Listen, I know this very well. As a small business owner, you already have a lot on your plate. The last thing you need to worry about is your bank. That's why Axos Bank provides simple, convenient, and hassle-free banking that business owners like you deserve. Axos is so confident in their basic business checking account, they'll give you $50 to try it out. Just use promo code JAMES and visit axosbank.com slash JAMES. That's the critical part today to get started. 
Axos is 100% digital with much lower overhead costs than traditional banks, so they pass those savings on to their customers. That's why they're able to do this. This means no maintenance fees, no minimum balance requirements, unlimited domestic ATM fee reimbursements, your first 50 checks for free, and up to 200 free transactions per month on their basic business checking account. Axos lets you access your money anytime, anywhere. Their time-saving digital tools allow you to check your accounts, make deposits, and pay bills wherever you are. Stay ahead of the challenges of modern business with a bank that works for you. Visit axosbank.com slash james to learn more and get your $50. Axos Bank, small business banking simplified. There's another game I talk about. It's called Power Grid. Power Grid's a great game. It's, uh, it's originally a German game. And it's a game where you're trying to build these uh, networks of uh, electric power networks in Germany. There's, there's maps for all over the world. It's, it's a great game. But you have to buy fuel for your power plants. The way the game works is that whoever is losing gets to buy their fuel first. And then the price goes up and you know the other people buy. And the person who's winning... Uh, they buy their fuel last. They pay the, the highest wholesale cost for their fuel to power their power plants. So it's like this built-in socialistic mechanism uh, into the game. And all this, you know, I'm making the game sound like kind of dreary, but people love it because it means there's this natural mechanism within the game. And it's not like, it's not artificial like we were talking about before where like you're playing chess with some guy and you take the rooks off and it's, they're being condescending. The game mechanics, as the game goes, give a leg up to the person who's losing. Uh, and, and people just enjoy it more. So it usually means that even when you're playing against a re- really good player, it's usually pretty close to the end of the game. So, but in uh, in Settlers of Catan, there's this notion of the the robber who kind of uh, prevents it's the Robin building Hood. of resources. He's equalizer. Yeah, but uh, that's not necessarily a natural part of the game. It's sort of put in there just to stabilize. So I th- it's well, it's put in there for a couple of reasons. Uh, I would argue it's like having like a, a, a an ultra high. Uh, rich tax or something. So so the guy who invented the game, I don't know why he put the, the robber in, but what I'm guessing is that a part of it is, it, even if you know you're going to lose, it gives you a psychological boost to know that you can shaft the guy who's going to win. Because when you move the robber onto like the, the most lucrative property on the board, you know, the hex that's generating, you know, like six wheat every time the guy uh, lands on it, like, that's a good feeling. It, 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 it's vaguely empowering to know that, well, okay, I'm going to lose the game, but I can still shaft the guy who's going to win. As opposed to a monopoly, when all your properties are mortgaged, you can't do anything. You are sitting there just getting victimized the whole game. Oh, it's why they say if, if monopoly were, were introduced now, no game company would produce it because the mechanism in it is just is completely antiquated. Right, and you, you also refer in the book, you say chess is... Um doesn't have this stabilizing factor, but I would I would argue that uh, skill is a stabilizing factor. So you could be losing, and maybe you made a blunder in the beginning, but ultimately uh, you could create complexity in situations where, because you could see it's further ahead, it yeah. stabilizes. I call chess an unstable dynamical system because all other factors being equal, two evenly matched players, if one player blunders away a piece, I'm not talking about a calculated sacrifice where you give up a pawn for mm-hmm. positional sure. advantage, I'm talking about you blunder away, even a pawn, but certainly a bishop or a knight, you're going to lose. And the reason you're going to lose is because not only have you lost a piece, uh, you now have one fewer tools to put pressure on your opponent, 
And a good player will leverage a small advantage into a medium-sized advantage and leverage a medium-sized advantage into a large advantage. And I show that that, that same dynamic applies you know, to military battles, uh, and it applies to economics, and it applies negatively, right? Like, you know, I, one of the lessons I draw, you know, in the United States, one of the reasons people remain in poverty is, uh, you know, you lose your job, and so you lose your health care, you lose your health care, so, you know, uh, you're living in pain, you're living in pain, so you get addicted to drugs, you get addicted to drugs, so you lose your family. Um, there's no natural stabilizing force because the, your, safety, your social safety net sucks. Uh, part of the lessons you learn from games is you learn how the rules governing a game create a certain kind of dynamic which can either accelerate systems or can reverse systems. Uh, and that's true of economics, it's true, as I say, in military contexts. And those are the kind of lessons I try and draw out. I say Monopoly is a terrible game, but you can learn important lessons about society based on how terrible so, it is. So that, that's, a, I, I, that's a good example about the guy who loses his job and then in a sort of a downward spiral. Um, but first, it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily apply to all aspects of capitalism. So for instance, MySpace was by far the winner and, and should have dominated every other social network, but... Facebook essentially changed the rules a little bit and then dominated MySpace. So, so in the real world, you can, it, it, you can change, you can change the, the rules themselves are dynamic. So Facebook said, okay, we're going to make a, a social network that has confirmed identity, which nobody's ever done before. So suddenly they redefined the category of a social network and flip, you know, flip the board on, on MySpace. And you could argue the same thing. Now, yes, in your example, person loses a job and there's that downward spiral, but there are many examples anecdotally that of, of somebody who loses everything and then makes it back. This sort yeah. of the apocryphal, you're, you know, start from scratch you're story. You're absolutely right, but you're a person who's captivated by acts of genius. So when you talk about the grandmaster who blunders away peace but still manages to win, you're also talking about the guy with 170 IQ whose startup went bankrupt but still finds a way to get back in the game and create a billion-dollar company because this person won the lottery in terms of intelligence. Yes, that happens, uh, but it shouldn't take a staggering act of genius to get back in the game, whether you're talking about a board game or you're talking about the economics of society. I, I agree, but maybe there's a lesson there in that um, reframing the rules is important. So if you don't get, uh, if your boss hates you and you don't get a promotion at work, you might think, okay, the downward spiral is going to begin. My boss is going to hate me forever. I'm never going to get a promotion. I'm going to eventually have to quit or whatever. But you could change the rules and say, well, I don't have to stay at this job. I'm going to apply for another job. So it's kind of a lesson, too, that in, in the real world, there's not one set of rules. So that's actually an interesting point. And so this game that I play, I'm going to go back to it, Advanced Squad Leader, um, there's thousands of different scenarios in this game. Um, you know, you'll recreate this battle, this battle. Um, some of the battles are actually from before World War II. They're from the, uh, you know, Chinese-Japanese War. Uh, there's a Korean module. And so there's thousands and thousands of scenarios, and every scenario is different. So, like, you'll look at the scenario, and it'll say, like, let's say it's a German-Russian scenario, and it'll say, uh, you know, to win the scenario, the Germans must, ca must, must capture this building, or the Russians must exit three tanks off the side of the board, something like that. Or the, victor, or the victor conditions will be more complex than that. And one thing I always advise every single player, read the victory conditions every single turn. And the reason I tell them that is because what happens is you're playing the game and you say, well, to win, I have to do this. And the best way to do that is to do this and this. And then you spend the whole game 
trying to do those other things. Because you've, you've programmed your mind and says, well, in order to win, I'm going to have to do this and this. And then as the game develops, you realize, wait a sec, there's a way to actually fulfill the victory conditions without going about my, my previous plan. I can take this building instead, or I can do this. And the game ends, and you're like, oh my god, I'm an idiot. I had my head in, my sand, in the sand, and all I was doing was thinking about fulfilling my original plan. And I could have won the game if I had rethought it. So I tell people, look at the victory conditions every single turn and ask yourself, is there another way of doing it? And the same is true of life. You know, people get hung up. They say, if I, if I can make 250000 a year, I'd be happy. And they spend their whole life trying to make a certain amount of money. And they don't step back and say, you know what? Like, is that true? Like, do I need to live in the city? Do I? Right. They don't, they don't reevaluate the victory conditions of their own life because they get hung up on intermediate goals. I think, I think that's an incredibly valuable lesson because, and I'll, I'll apply it to chess, is that you can start an attack on the queen side, for instance, and uh, your opponent might think, oh, he's trying to win over there, like win pieces or whatever, get space, whatever. Um, but it's just... It's also just uh, deflect, you know, deflecting your opponent so a you can focus on the king. A good sees the whole board every turn. Uh, like a, you know, a punk like me, uh, if he's focused, uh, you know, on, on, on an attack on one side, that's all he sees and everything else is a sideshow. And then it's the sideshow that kills you because the guy's your opponent's advancing his pawns in the sideshow. And you're like, who cares? Uh, you know, I have a seven-move combination I'm going to use to capture this guy's pawn or whatever. And um, because... Bad players, like people who lack self-awareness in life, they don't see the whole board. All they see is the narrow parochial goal they're going for, and they get frustrated. Yeah, I think I think that's uh, so. So there's this storytelling aspect. There's this uh, self-knowledge is a big part of it. Yes, self-knowledge as relating to what is your bigger picture. Is it to make two hundred fifty thousand? Is it to be happy? Is it to uh, do what you love. You know, these are sometimes people lose, like you say, sometimes people lose track of the bigger picture because they're focused on kind of a short-term win on, on the board in front of them. And it doesn't take a whole lifetime to do that. Like some of these games take, you know, might take an hour. It's amazing how much you can get distracted in the space of an hour, like within the world of the game. I'm not, I'm not talking about distractions from like your phone or your kids. I'm talking about like strategic distractions. Uh, and I can't tell you how many games I've played that at the end of it, I've just slapped myself and said, you know, if you had taken five seconds to, to literally physically stand back from the board and look at it and seen what the position was, uh, you know, you would have seen that was a clear path to victory instead of banging your head against the wall against this, this strategy that you formulated at the beginning that was never going to work. Uh, and I, I do think there are, there are uh, analogies between that and everyday life. And I'm just going to address a game that, that you don't like, but Scrabble, oftentimes uh, players will be focused on, I've got to put down a seven-letter word to get that 50-point bonus. When in fact, so they keep on, you know, putting out worthless words that don't make them any points because they're trying to accumulate more letters to get that seven-letter word. They get so focused on that while their opponent is just yeah. racking up points yep. and they lose the game. So the same thing happens there. Yeah, that's that's a good analogy. By the way, my my friend Daniel Kalman, uh, who I've played games with my whole life, he has a great house rule when it comes to Scrabble, and his rule is no stupid words, and and he decides what words are stupid. <laughs> well, <laughs> so, that, that's that's great for him then if he's the house. Well, no, he makes good decisions. <laughs> like, but you know, like stupid words are words that you know no one uses, and that's another. That's one thing I hate about Scrabble is like you don't have to know what the word means. Yeah. So even like, imagine how educational Scrabble would be if everyone who played Scrabble 
like knew what a kuz box is or you know, any of these gimmicky words that like you could spell without a vowel or whatever or like you know you have i don't know four m's and nothing else like if everybody knew those words then we'd live in the society of people with incredible vocabulary but it's just it rewards the memorization of arbitrary alphabetic codes Although I, I, this is an argument that could never end, but I, I do love the fact that once you have that memorization down, and by the way, it, to do that memorization requires a lot of skill and discipline as well, because there's really tens of thousands of words if you really want to master Scrabble that you need. You know, let's say there's 190,000 legal words. It's probably a good three to 5,000 words you should memorize to, to be great. And, but, Given that, which requires skill, discipline, hard work, given that, then there's this, this strategic factor, which is, you know, how to block your opponent from the triple word scores, how to block your opponent from uh, other opportunities. And that, that's very strategic at the highest level. You know, one of the stories, I think it's in the book, um, is that, uh, as I mentioned, my friend John Chu, uh, he goes and he administers uh, Scrabble tournaments all over the world. And one of the places where English Scrabble is super popular is in Thailand. Uh, for historical reasons, uh, not quite sure what they are, but like there's a lot of high-level tournaments in Thailand, and some of the people there who are crazy good at Scrabble, they don't speak English. Hmm. And in fact, there was uh, a world-leading English Scrabble player, I think he lived in the UK, uh, who just got bored of, of winning tournaments, and he taught himself French Scrabble. And he won, I think he won the French championships, even though he can't order a croissant in a cafe. In yeah, French. it makes sense, because if you think about it, you could win simply by knowing words like QAT, QOPF. This guy memorized the dictionary. Like, yeah, I mean, it, it's crazy. It, it's, it's amazing to me that EDH somehow is a legal word. That's a stupid Scrabble. word. That is a stupid word. <laughs> right. So, so, you just said a stupid but word. But again, it, there's, a, there's a beauty to the fact that someone sits around and no, because they want to get better at Scrabble, they, they learn the discipline of learning which no, words no, are important. No, you're romanticizing something stupid. It's, it's a waste of time. <laughs> no, it's because, a waste okay, of but like with those Q words, Q is a hard letter to get rid of because you need the U as well. So, so strategically, if you want to get better at Scrabble in terms of like the, the, the meta learning of learning how to play Scrabble, learn how to get rid of the difficult right. to get rid of words like uh, letters like Q. So you learn QAT, QI, QOPF, and, and so on. So like tonight, I want you to memorize the license plates of every single person in your apartment building. And we're going to create a game out of that. And it's going to inspire meta learning and all the things you just said. It's going to be so. It, yeah, it's if, good, yeah. if I enjoyed that game because there was a big enough population of people where I could feel validated by defeating all of those players, then I would do that. <laughs> I, you know what? I believe that <laughs> because a game, game, part of a game is about winning and and self esteem and and you know. Well, okay. So I'll be honest. Like, um, I, I usually don't like to come on podcasts and beat up on little kids, but <laughs> but everything I just said about the reasons I don't like Scrabble, you could apply to to a spelling bee. Like spelling bee is, is about memorizing like how to spell words. Uh, and in fact, essentially, it's in, in a way, it's worse than Scrabble because Scrabble, you at least have the geometric spatial aspect and the strategic aspect. Uh, spelling bee just rewards uh, a kid's ability to memorize lists of letters. But, 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 and but, I hate spelling bees. I, I, I refuse, okay. yeah. I, that's why I don't get ESPN 8 or whatever it's on. Like, I just, <laughs> I refuse to watch spelling bees. But I would argue with spe spelling bees, part of the training is learning 
the Latin roots, the Greek roots. So when you do encounter a word you yeah. don't know, you can piece piece it together. That's that's it, actually a good point. That's, so that's, that's that's I think that's your best point today. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank God, yeah, I was yeah. I was getting nervous. Yeah, okay, good. Uh, so okay, let's talk about some other lessons you've learned. And I think also there's uh, hi- historical lessons you learn. Kind of the the world we live in now by safely experiencing you know the world we lived in in the past. It, yeah, and or, or even with sellers of of Catan, which is not based on any real world, you learn about how how trade and cooperation and and resources, you know, at a very basic economics level, kind of get distributed through society. Well, if you look at microeconomics, like one of one of if if you're an undergrad studying uh, micro, one of the things that's just the hardest thing to get your head around is that you know your 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 professor will say, imagine two islands, and one of the islands is better at producing everything than the other island. Like, you know, they're better at producing guns, they're better at producing butter, name a product, they're better, and the other island is, is crap at producing everything, but there's differences in the relative ability, relative efficiencies in the various industries. You can prove mathematically that it still makes sense for trade to take place between the two islands, because even though one island can make everything cheaper in, in absolute terms, you can still generate efficiencies for both by, by trading. That plays out in Catan. You know, you know, some guy will have a sheep port, and no one needs sheep, but he's got this ability to turn sheep into stuff that people actually want. Um, and you, you learn supply and demand. Like, I don't, have you played Sellers of Catan? No. Okay, well, I, okay, so this, this might be lost on you. Uh, but Sellers of Catan, it's a game where you have wood, you have brick, you have stone, you have sheep, you have wheat. These are the basic resources. And depending on the roll of the dice, the market could be flooded with some of these resources or the market, like no one will have any stone and you need stone to build cities in the basic game. So no one is building cities because there's no stone and you're all waiting for the dice to roll so that someone gets stone. But it's also just very common that like everyone has sheep. They're just all trying to get rid of sheep. Um, like, you know, say, hey, uh, you have a stone. Give me a stone. I'll give you like 10 sheep. And the guy's like, no, I don't. What am I going to do with sheep? That is probably the best way I know to teach like a nine-year-old how supply and demand works. And also it's an interesting thing about currency and exchange rates and 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 nothing has inherent, like when you're talking about economics, nothing has inherent worth. Like you're never going to win an argument in Settle of Catan saying, you know, a sheep has intrinsic worth to you. It's like this cool thing to have a sheep. And, you know, even a nine-year-old kid is, is going to say, a sheep is worth to me what I can buy with a sheep, and I already have all this sheep, and I don't need your sheep, and that's bullshit. Like, a nine-year-old kid knows that that's BS and can understand fairly sophisticated concepts because they're motivated to win. Uh, one of the themes of the book is that the desire to defeat people and be competitive just has a natural accelerating effect on learning because no one wants to be humiliated. Um, everyone's hyper-focused if they're competitive. That's why it's important to be competitive. Not too competitive, because then you're a jerk. But if you're not competitive at all, and you come to the table and say, well, I don't care if I win, that's, not only is that not for, fun for you, it's not fun for everybody. Right, you actually, that, this is an important p- part of the book, just to, just, because uh, I want to continue with what you're saying, but, uh, you know, Joe and your co-author says, uh, in, a, in a good game, everybody agrees to abide by the rules, uh, everybody agrees to take the game seriously, uh, you know, they, they make a sincere effort to win and they agree not to take the game so seriously that they're, 
they take they take game moves personally and get angry and and so on. And I I think I think that second point is really the first point is obvious. You got to play by the rules. Second point um, is very important. Is the most important, which is that everybody needs to the best of their efforts take the game seriously, or else it's no fun for anybody. It's absolutely true. I, it's like it's like the tension in an elastic band. If you pull too hard, it's going to break. Uh, but if you don't pull, it's just it's a useless piece of rubber. There has to be a competitive tension that exists in the zone where it's fun. Uh, but, but I hate it when I'm playing a game and, and someone is, they come to the table and they say, I don't care if I win or lose. And then they act in this really slacker fashion, like they'll intentionally make stupid moves. And they might be doing it. It's kind of like they're, maybe they're insecure. And so they want to be self-defeating before the game defeats them. You know, they want to, like, this is the way of coping with insecurities. I get that. Uh, but it makes it, it, it really takes the fun out of it for everybody else because it takes the fun out of winning. Uh, and it also, yeah, it takes away the competitive tension, which is where the enjoyment of a game comes from. And this, this is an important part of, you know, organization behavior, whether it's a company or a school or a classroom or the government or whatever. If there's an employee at a company who's just going there for the paycheck, the company's not going to be as good or as efficient as if everybody is there because they buy into the vision of the company or they buy into the vision of the the charity or the organization or the classroom and and all participate and all want you know this to be the most either educational or enjoyable or profitable experience for for all the others involved i think this i think this is a key lesson in life as well so this book is not marketed as a management book um but there's at least one chapter where we do get into some of this stuff and that's a, a chapter where we talk about the difference between competitive games, which is like 90% of games where you're trying to win, and then there's a style of game which has become popular called cooperative games. So I'm, I'm not sure if you've heard of a game called Pandemic. Mm-hmm. So Only uh, in the book. It's uh, Yeah, it's, I think it gets mentioned there. There's a game called Eldritch Horror. There's a Japanese game called Hanabi. These are all uh, cooperative games. And the idea is you win or lose as a team. So like in Pandemic, you play the role of like you know a scientist or a military guy but you're all on the same team trying to defeat uh, an, an epidemic before it destroys the planet, and either the disease destroys the planet or you defeat the epidemic and, and you all win, but you all win or lose together. And that chapter has the most to do with management science because we're talking about how, like a corporation or an activist group, uh, any kind of business is nominally a cooperative organization. It's not a competitive organization. You're all ostensibly working for the same purpose. You're trying to serve customers. You're trying to generate profit, right? Um, however, there's all sorts of competitive pressures that come up within that collaborative organization. And those are modeled within games like Pandemic. One problem we talk about, it's famous in gaming, it's known as the alpha player problem. The alpha player problem is that you're playing a game like Pandemic and you're all supposed to be a team. There's like five or six of you. But because you're all going to the same objective, there's one guy, and it's usually a guy, who has played the game many times and is just telling everybody else what to do. And no one has any autonomy whatsoever because this doesn't happen in competitive games because you're competing against each other. But in a collaborative game, a cooperative game, because you're all on the same team, you've got one know-it-all telling everybody else what to do. No one's having fun because, you know, they're just like robots. And the question is, how do you defeat this alpha player problem? Because when you confront the alpha player, he's like, hey, do you want to win or not? You want to win? I know the game better than you, you know, listen to me. And you're like, well, okay, I I guess I want to win, so let's do it. And I talk about how many organizations suffer from an alpha player problem. Where, you know, you have a law firm 
where a guy has done the same kind of contract, you know, for 20 years. And so he insists on taking all that kind of work. And he says, well, you know, we'll serve the client better if I take this. But meanwhile, you're not mentoring anybody. No one's getting any experience. Uh, you know, when this person retires, no one in the company has any institutional knowledge about how to do this work. So you get alpha player problems within organizations. And you can model how to deal with it based on, uh, it's actually a very popular genre now, um, these, these cooperative games. Uh, and I should say that the, the creators of these games have found ways to deal with the alpha player problems. There's subtle techniques to deal with it. So, so yeah, you mentioned in the book that one of the techniques is to give people private goals that are secret and that so they're moving towards not only the goal of the whole, but the goal of the individual. And I would argue in an organization, you know, particularly in today's day and age, there's high turnover in every job. Everybody has a private goal for their careers and their, and their lives, but then there's the public goal of the organization and the job of management and really everybody on the team is to kind of assist people with their private goals if you figure that them out so that we're all happy to accomplish the public goal together, uh, which I think is a, a great lesson from these cooperative games. I would argue, by the way, competitive games have the same problem. So if a grandmaster of chess is playing a beginner of chess, neither of them is going to have a fun time. <laughs> so, so if the goal of the game is not just to win, but also to have fun, you kind of need both people to be fairly uh, skilled or at least have private goals that are uh, that, that could be met well, by, by the players need, of the game. You need meta rules. So one thing, and I, well, this is, this is common sense. I don't think you need to read this book to know it, but um, there are rules that are written down in the book, a rule book for a game, and then there's meta rules that no one writes down. And the meta rules are particular to a group of friends. So there could be a meta rule that says when you win, you don't gloat. Or it could be that, you know, you're playing with a bunch of frat guys and 90% of the fun is gloating. And people, you know, you're playing, you're reminding them of like that time you beat them 10 years ago. And it's fun. It's like, that's, they're all in on it. And it's a meta rule that says gloating is encouraged. It's, it's part of the game. Uh, and unless you know the meta rules of a group of friends, like you have to be careful. And these meta rules can, can vary drastically based on, on, on the groups of people you're playing with. By the way, I should just going back. You were talking about uh, public and private goals. There's a great game we talk about in the book. Uh, this I've never played it, but Joan, Mori, uh, Joan Moriarty, my co-author, does a great job of describing it. It's a game called Dead of Winter, and it's uh, a zombie apocalypse game where you. It's ostensibly collaborative, right? So you and your friends, you all play these characters. Uh, it's kind of like, um, God, what's that popular uh, TV show? The, the, the Walking Dead. Walking Dead. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's kind of like that where, you know, one guy plays like, I don't know, the mechanic or the soldier, and the goal is to survive the zombie apocalypse, right? That's the public goal. And if, and if you don't survive, everyone loses. Like, you go home, everyone loses. However, there's, everyone has a private goal, and the private goals are super creepy. Like, the private goal is like, the person to your left must die. Or, um, you know, uh, you know, you must raid this particular building. You're a drug addict, and you must raid this particular building and get all the medicine or something like that. But you can't tip your hand. You can't win unless you satisfy the private goal. So everyone at the beginning of the game, everyone's like, oh, yeah, you know, let's uh, all for one and one for all. And then as the game goes on, one guy's like, hey, I'm just going to go over to this building. I'm just going to go here. And everyone's sort of like, well, you know, why would you go there? And it's like, oh, yeah, I think it's, it'll help the group if I wander off and get this medicine. So, like... So and, this doesn't sound like your ideal kind of game because there's that, that extra psychological component. So it's, yeah, I, I'd be terrible at it because I would believe everybody 
they <laughs> like you know every every lame excuse they give for self-serving behavior i'd be like okay that makes sense like i'm super gullible when i play games yeah. like this um but i'm in love with the concept of the game because it's exactly like an organization where you have you know if the company goes bankrupt you all lose right on the other hand everyone has private goals like you know one guy is trying to get a promotion or or somebody is trying to like um uh I don't know, sell their stock shares, you know, artificially inflate the value of the company. Like one partner may be trying to get out, so they want to have an incredibly profitable year so they can parachute out, uh, even though it's not in the interest of the rest of the company. But they have to convince everybody it is. And so there's this gamesmanship, and that game exists on the cusp of competitive and collaborative. So it's this really interesting psychological space. That game's called Dead of Winter. Uh, I'm, again, I've never played it, but it's uh, the chapter on that is really evocative. You know, it reminds me of parenting a little bit because I always say about my kids when they tell me something there's usually a good reason to what they're telling me and there's a real reason so if my daughter says oh I gotta study at the library that's a really good reason I'm not gonna say no to her but the real reason might be oh there's lots of boys hanging out at the library for whatever reason and that's right. the real reason she wants to go so, so do you live in Riverdale like <laughs> in the, <laughs> this, is, this is such a wholesome uh, like meeting boys no, in the that's library just my example okay. I, right. I don't know if she's ever actually been to a library it's such a wholesome <laughs> hypothetical like you know meeting boys at the library so, um, but it yeah. just explains the the example very well and that's the difference between these private and, and public goals yeah uh, and it's part of navigating society uh, and it's <laughs> and so would you argue then playing games like this helps you sort of navigate that a little better? I think what happens is people choose games that accord with their ability to navigate um, the kind of situations you're talking Like this thing with your your kid going to the library and stuff like that. Like this is one of the reasons that I'm glad I'm married to to somebody who can sniff out you know, bad actors in the zombie apocalypse because like, I believe my kids, my kids could tell me anything, right? Like I'm doing a project on crystal meth. Like, you know, like I, okay. Like I, I gullible, my wife isn't. And so we're a good team that way. So, uh, so, so, so if you're playing a, a game, it's also good to, uh, pick members of your team. If you're playing a game that involves a team, know your limitations, to, and and pick people on your team who kind of, well, you got to know your limitations and, and, but it's, it's often the self-selection. Like, I don't play social site games because mm -hmm. not only do I lose, I don't even understand why I lose. Huh. So like at the end of the game, people will be explaining about like all the subtle, you know, uh, shifts and alliances and like secret winks and stuff like that. And I just have no idea what they're talking about. It all went over my head. I don't mind losing in a game as long as I learn something about why I lost. Uh, but I find in social site games, I, 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 I don't even have the mental faculties to appreciate why I lost. Uh, which, by the way, would be a lot like playing chess against a grandmaster. You know, you're playing chess against a grandmaster, and seven moves in, they're like, well, you lost the game. And you're like, what do you mean I lost the game? It's like, well, you know, you'll see. And then, like, 20 moves later, you realize they're right. But that's frustrating. You know, yeah. I, I don't mind being getting beat, but I don't want it to be an invisible kind of defeat. I want it to be something I learned from. Well, that's why I think also these classic games that don't seem, like, cooperative are actually more cooperative than you think because at the end of the game, both both players want to play a beautiful game. They want to have the opportunity to play a beautiful well, game. Jordan Peterson says, uh, I forget where he said it, uh, the purpose of any game is to get invited back, right? And uh, if, if you spike the football uh, and no one invites you back because you're acting like a jerk, you know, that's the equivalent of making the brilliant chess move in the burning building where, like, you know, you fulfilled your short-term programming but you've screwed yourself in the long term. And yeah, that's supposed to be the difference between humans and machines. 
So a lot of this, a lot of this book, I think is, uh, it's great. And that for me, it was an introduction to a lot of these more, uh, you know, these board, this, this style of board game, as opposed to the class, I like all the classic games. I'm not really that familiar with these, um, you know, strategic board games. It's almost like a love letter to these board games is the, is the book, but you do have a lot of these, these great lessons. And I think we've, we've covered a lot of them, but, uh, would you add anything else to what we've covered in terms of life lessons? Yeah, I think one of the life lessons, and well, this is covered in the very first chapter, and it's covered by um, my, my co-author, who, again, because she works in a board game cafe, she has just seen so many smart people um, choose games, and, you know, she sees what works and what doesn't. And um, games are fun, but you also need, like, to gird yourself when you start the game and remind yourself, this is a game, and if I lose, or even if I don't understand the rules, it's not going to be something I'm going to be humiliated about. Because one of the biggest laments in the book is that board gaming has to some extent remained a subculture because people who, who would love to play some of these games are afraid that if they play it, they'll look stupid. I mean, this is like, she describes the scene where people are looking at all these amazing, cool Euro games, but they're a little bit complicated, and then they're like, at the end, it's sort of like, well, I'm just going to order the same food I ordered, you know, when I was a little kid. They'll just, they'll, you know, they'll get the Ameritrash game. And you have to play with people who aren't going to judge you. Uh, if you're playing with people who are going to make fun of you because you lost the first five times you played a game, uh, it's not the game that's the problem. It's the people you're gaming with. It's, it's the atmosphere you're gaming, you know, of, of the people you're gaming with. So... Uh, Try and pick people who are, are charitable and, and well-socialized and who are themselves gamers. Because if you're a good gamer, the last thing you want to do is make fun of somebody who doesn't know the rules or whatever. Because if you do that, that's one fewer people you're going to be able to play with. Because they're just going to say, you know what, this is, this is a bunch of uh, mean-spirited nerds and I don't want to play. So you know, when I play with beginners, I'm extra nice. Uh, once they get good, that's when I can start being a jerk. But... Uh, you know, gamers owe it to beginners to be extremely sympathetic uh, as they're learning the game, because otherwise we're not going to attract new people to the uh, to the hobby. So, so a lot of these lessons, it feels like, are the direct benefits of playing these games to your life. So, for instance, you enjoy them, you learn history, you learn some aspects of capitalism and what makes a good game, what makes a good set of rules, what makes a good player. Uh, you know, I'm wondering if there's more lessons in in life like this is how i acquire skills in something or this is how i learn when i need to be more offensive rather than defensive oh, absolutely yeah yeah because i think um there are some people i play with who don't win just because they they have a defensive mindset and um it, or too offensive they can be too optimistic so one my problem one of my problems in chess is that like eight or nine or ten moves in i just i always start like how am i going to attack how am i going to develop an attack and and sometimes the answer to the question how am i going to develop an attack is you don't have the pieces developed to attack you, you have to wait you or you know or or don't attack at all lure the person into their own bad attack right because you know, and this is similar to, from how you described Katan. Uh, it reminds me of chess in that with both games, let's say, assuming all people are fairly equal, uh, the way you win is accumulating small advantages throughout the game until finally you everybody realizes, oh, 
this guy has huge advantages and now he's now he's going to use them but but he's the person who does it subtly uh there are games like there's a lot of games uh and power grid is one of them where there's no advantage to, to coming out of the starting block and just like powering through and you know shock and awe because as soon as you do that um people are going to try and stop you one thing i don't like about monopoly is there's no subtlety to it like there is nothing in the monopoly game mechanism that really prevents you from a shock and awe strategy right because even if people don't want to deal with you you'll eventually have them over a barrel and you know they're going to owe you 1200 bucks and and then you're going to be able to just to to take it out of them but monopoly though let's say one person does go out the gate aggressively the other people will probably form some sort of alliance like this happens in risk as well you know the other people will you know at least a casual alliance for a little while to, to yeah you know how long that alliance lasts that alliance lasts just as long as until one of them lands on one of the guy's properties and doesn't have the cash on hand to pay him and has to start selling houses and hotels at 50% discount, may I add. And suddenly they're like, you know what? Forget that alliance. Uh, this guy wants these two railroads. Take the two, two railroads. And then the other people in the alliance are, no, you know, you're, <laughs> what, happened to, what happened to the deal? And you're like, the deal lasts until you have to save yourself. Okay, okay, another example is in the card game Hearts, which I'm not sure if you're familiar. Let's say throughout the course of a, of a game, you realize one of the players is trying to do, and I don't want to get too into the weeds, one of the players is trying to shoot the moon. Yeah, no, I don't play Hearts because I'm not a grandmother in Del Boca Vista. So like, <laughs> no, you know, it's a great, it's a no, great game. it's not a great game. It's, it's, these are bad games. So like, has my book taught you nothing? Like the book, <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's so many I great can see games. why the psychological <laughs> games are hard for you, yeah. but go yeah. ahead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm still learning in that respect. No, I, I so um, it is possible in many games for like a coalition of losers to take on a winner. Uh, but the dynamics of most of these games are pretty ruthless, and and, and usually uh, the winner has a way of breaking down the coalition. And then, by the way, then there's one other person to be mad at. Not only are you mad at the guy who won, you're also mad at the other loser who backstabbed <laughs> you, and so like you end up being mad at everybody. Monopoly is a terrible, terrible game. And I, by the way, I've probably played 100 games Monopoly. There was a time that I played, but the reason I played it was because there was no other good games out there. When I was a kid, Monopoly was you know, on risk, they were the best of a batch of bad games. Um, but it's sort of like television, you know, we, we're older now. We don't watch Three's Company. We don't watch Happy Days, you know? We don't watch Chachi in Charge. I could go on all day. So we, what's, uh, what's, what, what would you say are the, and, and we'll, we'll close with this, what, what would you say are the minimum qualities of what you consider a good game? Minimum qualities of a good game are um, that every player plays the whole game and you don't have people being eliminated and sitting there, you know, getting mad at you so okay so monopoly and risk are out monopoly and risk are out but uh, scrabble chess yeah and and, well, still here, and here's what and this is the most poker's out this is it shouldn't involve gambling right because you know hey, there's nothing wrong with, i'm not shouldn't be illegal but gambling is not board gaming it's a separate thing well poker if you play in tournaments it's not gambling uh backgammon if you play in tournaments it's not gambling but there's an element of chance back, back and there's decision-making yeah. about, Backgammon you know. is, is, is a gray area. By the way, most people who play backgammon don't play with the doubling cube, so it's, it becomes a different game. Uh, but here, here's the most controversial one. This is the one that's like totally going to light your social media on fire with trolls, okay? <laughs> I refuse to play any game that requires knowledge from outside the game system to play. So if you're, I, I refuse to play Trivial Pursuit because Trivial Pursuit 
is a test of information you learned outside the game. Yeah, I agree with that. So it's, it's, it's a high school quiz, and people say, oh, you shouldn't feel stupid if you lose in Trivial Pursuit. I lose in Trivial Pursuit all the time, and I do feel stupid because it's, it's a test. It's like, do you know who directed Gone with the Wind? I said, no, I have no idea who, oh, well, everybody knows that. And like, I'm like, well, this isn't fun. This is just, you know, this is, and, and Scrabble, I would argue, is a game that requires knowledge from outside the game system because it's a test of the catalog of English words and that's why I don't like it. Okay, but like, uh, uh, and I, I just keep getting back to the classical games because that's what I know. But like poker, chess, go, uh, keep within the context of the game. You don't need to know anything yeah, outside the game. Yeah, yeah. Chess, ch I have other problems with chess. Uh, of the games you just mentioned, backgammon is my favorite game because I think a good game should have some element of, of, of chance. Uh, otherwise, it just, it, otherwise, it just becomes an IQ test. Uh, and, and I just know from experience, I don't have the IQ to develop my chess ability beyond a certain level. Whereas in backgammon, I always feel like I have a chance because I know statistics pretty well. And that there's always, this, if I get the right role, I'm going to be able to get back in this game. And that's a fun feeling to have. Uh, if you feel like you're losing and there's no way to get back in, but you have to play out, play your grim hand out to the end, that's, that's what turns people off board games. That's, that, that's a negative feeling. And any other qualities to like, because because I would I would argue with some of these games, uh, there's so many rules. I feel that's not fun. It should have a story to tell, and you know if if you're playing you know I don't know Hearts or Canasta or you know whatever it is you're playing down in Florida, I mean that if if there's no narrative and it's just like did I get the right card or the no, if you're playing checker, I mean checkers actually requires a lot of intelligence, but it doesn't have a story. I always tell people try and tell a story with your games. You know it, it could be a simple story like in chess. It could be, you know, a more developed story like in Catan, or it could be like a really detailed story like the kind I described in my chapter about Advanced Squad Leader. Uh, but it's nice when the game's over and it's not just you won, I lost, or I won, you lost, but it's like we crowdsourced a narrative and no other game that will ever be played in human history will have quite that same narrative. That's kind of a cool feeling. Uh, and that's what uh, impelled me to write the book. Well, uh, Jonathan Kay, your book is... Your move, what board games teach us about life. Uh, right now, what's your absolute most favorite game? That'll never change. It's Advanced Squad Leader. Uh, but there's a, 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 there's a game that everyone needs to play to teach them about statistics. It's over in half an hour, which is what you know, a lot of people like. They like shorter games. It's, a, it's actually a classic. It's called Can't Stop. I don't know it. You don't know it. Most people don't know it. It's one of these games that deserves to be in the you know, the Hall of Fame of games, and uh, it's called Can't Stop. It's a simple game, and the title says it all. It's what's known as a push-your-luck game. But if you're in a game shop and you're listening to this or you're on Amazon, Can't Stop, and you can play it with like a 10-year-old. It's a super fun game, uh, and it deserves, it deserves to be up there with, uh, you know, you talked about Connect Four and all these, all these other games. Uh, I, I'm a big fan. What, what, what's your number one classic game? <sighs> It's chess, but I hate it so much. Like you know, it's uh, <laughs> uh, and it's actually, and I didn't know you were a chess master until I came on. Like I'm, I'm not sure I would have come on if I knew you were a chess master. Like it's very, because you hate just chess players. It's intimidating. <laughs> no, it's kind of like you know a person. I don't know. It's like a person telling you they went to Harvard or something. Like it's just it's. Oh, believe me, most chess players, <laughs> even grandmasters, are the stupidest people you'll ever meet. <laughs> 
Well, anyway, I'm, I'm very impressed. And uh, yeah, so I didn't realize you had such high qualifications to conduct this interview. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, thanks. thanks. The one nice thing you, yeah. you say at the end of the year. <laughs> Hang on, just don't go yet. I want to remind you, I want you to have a copy of what I think is one of my best books that I've ever written, Reinvent Yourself. Reinvent Yourself is all about taking action, no matter where you are starting from. And in this book, I disclose how I, and also I tell dozens of stories of other people, how we've turned our lives around and how I know you can too, no matter where you're starting from, because I've started from the bottom Whether you want to supplement your income with a little extra cash or replace your job, the book Reinvent Yourself will show you how. I've reserved a copy for anyone listening to this today. All you have to do is go to www.reinventbook.net. That's www.reinventbook.net. It's possible to create the life you want. And I've talked to so many people about this, plus my own experience. So go to www.reinventbook.net right now. I'm excited about what this book can do for you. Just go to www.reinventbook.net to learn more. That's www.reinventbook.net. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last.